Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. closest thing to a spiritual experience that many people ever have living in New Jersey. But they are a guilty pleasure, aren't they? Uh, specifically, if you grew up in the 80s, quick survey, who has attended a Bon Jovi concert in person? Raise your hand, okay? All right, another show of hands, who won't admit it? Okay. Uh, it was 1987 when Slippery When Wet first came out. I was actually a junior in high school at the time, and I remember living on a prayer uh, that summer because my friends and I spent it primarily in the parking lot of 7-Eleven in Cedar Grove. And we would pull up, and one of my buddies, he had the coolest ride, remember this from the 80s, an IROC Z. Remember that car? And we were just like so cool. Just the epitome of Jersey style with our acid wash jeans and big Reebok sneakers with the tongues hanging out. And of course, our mullets. How great was the mullet in New Jersey in the 80s, right? The Kentucky Water Forum, right? All business in the front, party out the back. And... Uh, <laughs> And Living on a Prayer was pretty much just about the coolest song of the time was our soundtrack that summer. And my friend would open the doors of his IROC Z convertible, crank his radio up to 10, and we'd just, you know, wow, living on a prayer. And now uh, that's pretty much how every high school prom in New Jersey went for the next five years. Uh, but it's actually a great song. I mean, Bon Jovi is not a brilliant band. Don't know that they'll ever get mistaken for like Beethoven or Bach. But it's a great song because beyond that, that killer hook, wow, it's a song that tells a story about a couple of kids, a couple of working class young adults by the names of, let's see how close you remember. Do you remember? Tommy and Gina. Thank you. What exit are you from? You know this. Uh, some of you may remember where Tommy used to work, right? Yeah, Tommy used to work on the docks. But if you call, the union's been on strike, so he's actually down on his luck. I mean, it's tough. Uh, so tough. Gina, on the other hand, remember what she does? Waitress, right? Yeah, she works at a diner all day, working for her man. She brings home her pay for l'amour, right? <laughs> New Jersey romance. Anyway, it's a song about this man and this woman who've actually fallen on hard times. Um, they are at their wits' end. Their jobs are kind of in the tank. Their finances have crashed. I mean, Tommy actually has his, his, his sixth string in hock. And their relationship is struggling. And basically, all they're living on is a prayer, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, sometimes it takes hard times that truly bring us to our knees to get us in the position to talk with God. Well, today I want to talk to you about living on a prayer, the kind of honest to goodness prayer that God hears when the circumstances of our lives get difficult. Now, if you were, how many of you were here last week? If you remember last week, okay, I introduced you to the life of a man named Joe or Jonah, the guy who ran from God. And we learned a spiritual truth that really governs all of our lives, whether you're from New Jersey or even Long Island, and it's this. You can run from God, but you can't outrun God. That was the central truth of Jonah's life. And that's a difficult one to swallow because we can spend a lifetime coming to terms with it. Because the reality is when things get, get, get tough or we're asked to do something we actually don't want to do, we often run from God. 
Last week, we acknowledged that we're all born to run, to borrow the boss's phrase, kind of a New Jersey theme. And it is a natural impulse. That second verse of living on a prayer says, actually, Gina dreams of running away. Everybody does it. And sometimes we actually run from God. That's what Jonah did, actually, if you remember. It said the word of the Lord came to Jonah and he said, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. And that was very difficult because Nineveh, we found out, was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which was known for one thing. It's legendary violence and terror, just total brutality, child sacrifice, actually skinning people alive and vast towns were conquered by the Ninevites and the Assyrians. And when they knew they were coming, sometimes they would commit mass suicide because they were so cruel and barbaric. And God said, their wickedness has come up before me and I want you, Jonah, to go. And Jonah was like, yeah, not so much. (laughs) We actually learned from Jonah that sometimes God will ask you to do things that you don't want to do when you're in a relationship with him. It could be very, you know, generalized or kind of in a very specific area. And God said, I want you to go. And Jonah said, no. God said, go east, young man. And Jonah actually went west. Actually, instead of going 500 miles east to Nineveh, this is kind of interesting, do you know this? Nineveh is in modern day Iraq, right in the north there. Jonah got on a boat and went 2,500 miles west to Tarshish, which is in southern Spain to flee from the Lord. 3,000 miles apart. And we learned that when God asks you to do something you don't want to do, you can actually always find a boat sailing in another direction, can't you? (laughs) When that happens, and we send ourselves spiraling the opposite way of God's direction, God will sometimes in his mercy send along a storm to get our attention. And that's what happened in Jonah 1. Then the Lord sent along a great wind on the sea, And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. So this great wind kind of slams the boat that Jonah's on. All the sailors freak out. They toss the cargo overboard. And then in verse 6, it says, The captain went to Jonah and said, Get up and call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us and we will not perish. In other words, he says, Get up, Jonah, and pray. You're a prophet, right? A prophet's like a man of God. You've got the message of God and everything. And Jonah is fast asleep. Just kind of immune to the destruction that his running brings into the lives of those around him. But the storm rages on, but Jonah won't pray. The Jonah, the prayerless prophet. Actually, like a lot of Christians who, you know, call themselves believers, claim to believe in God, but really have virtually no prayer life whatsoever. I like the story Craig Rochelle uh, tells of the small town church, it's a true story, in the Midwest, where a strip club opened up across the street from the church. Strip club, actually, owner opened a bar across from the church. And, uh, and actually, the Christians and the pastor in that congregation got all indignant. They said, not in our town, you know, the, the devil's music, you know, women being exploited. And they started praying against it. They actually held a 24-hour vigil. True story. God shut it down. Liberate those women. Let's pray them out of business. They had a banner made. And after two weeks of praying, guess what happens? Electrical storm, actually, over the Midwest. Strip club gets struck with lightning, burns to the ground. So what does the bar owner do? Sues the church. (laughs) And in his court testimony, documented court testimony, he claimed in court transcripts, they prayed against my business, that I quote them, God would shut it down. And God answered their prayers. He sent lightning, I lost everything. And these Christians need to pay for damages. Now, when they brought the pastor on, kind of as a special witness there, the pastor actually, his, his record testimony was actually, whoa, wait a minute, those were only little old prayers, don't, don't blow this out of proportion. I mean, they didn't have anything to do with what happened to your club. And the judge kind of laughed and said, oh, this is very interesting. 
On the one side, I have a strip club owner who believes in the power of prayer. (laughs) And on the other side, a church full of Christians who don't. (laughs) Jonah, true story, Jonah, the prophet of God who's not in the mood to pray. And this storm rages on and the sailors say, what should we do about this? And Jonah actually finally admits it's his fault. He told them he was running from God and they actually tossed Jonah overboard into the raging sea. So sometimes we learn God sends a storm to get our attention. And Jonah sinking in the water probably thought, well, wrong boat. Can't get much worse than this. But it did. Because in the last verse of Jonah's story in chapter one, God provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah's worst nightmare turns out to be God's second chance to him. Instead of letting him sink and drown, God literally provides a miracle. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And we learn the central truth. You can run from God. That is entirely possible. But you can't outrun God. There's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. And that's how chapter one of Jonah ends. But in chapter two, Jonah does something significant in the belly of the whale. He prays. In fact, if you look at the heading of chapter 2, and I want to invite you to turn with me. you got Bibles there on your seats, page 644. We're on Jonah chapter 2. And if you look at the heading of, of chapter 2, it says Jonah's prayer. And the entire chapter is actually a record of the prayer that Jonah prayed while he was three days, three nights in the belly of this fish. I mean, that was some time to think. He had some time to reflect. Nothing to eat, no light, nothing to do. And, and so Jonah came to his senses and, and literally he was living on a prayer, inches from death, at the mercy of God. A little bit more lights there, Jackson, just for people so they can follow along. And this prayer, we learn several important things about God. Now, I want you to understand something. This likely was not written by Jonah, like transcribed while he was in the whale. I mean, I kind of doubt that, that that would have been possible, kind of up, you know, and down in the waves and it would have been like, you know, whale, you know, slow down. I mean, how do you even, what's whale speak? This prayer was likely recorded by Jonah after he'd been delivered to dry land. And looking back, he wrote this beautiful Hebrew psalm. It's actually very poetic to try and capture some of the lessons that he learned through the experience by literally living on a prayer. And I want to talk through this briefly because I think Jonah's prayer teaches us four important things about God's attitude towards runners. Uh, last week was kind of a neat week. If you weren't here, uh, just very emotional. Um, many of you at the end of the service, and I invited you, if you identified with some aspect of Jonah's story, you felt like maybe you were running from God in a certain area of your life, to actually stand up during our, our, closing, our closing worship set. And it was amazing because almost at every service, we had a room full of people standing up saying, I'm running from God or I'm drifting in this area and I want to take a step back. That was amazing. But Jonah's prayer now, continuing on, gives us four lessons to the Jonas and all of us that really are predisposed to run in the opposite direction of the life that God invites us into. So let's read this prayer together and you'll see them emerge. Jonah 2, verse 1, it says this. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. And he said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and, let's read together, he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help and you listened to my cry. And the first thing we learned through Jonah's last ditch, this is a Hail Mary of a prayer, okay? From inside the fish is simple but profound. That God listens to the prayers of those who run. And this is incredible. I mean, I mean, catch this, okay? The creator of the universe, the almighty powerful one, the one who made actually the stars, the sea, our world, everything in it, the supreme God, almighty, when he is snubbed or stiff-armed by us, or rejected, or dissed by one of his puny, wayward, stubborn creatures, he still 
listens to their cry for help anyway. I mean, logic would say, I mean, this is great, Jonah, you know, prays in chapter 2. That's great that, you know, his, his, he kind of blew it in his crushing circumstances, jump-started his prayer life. But why would God pay attention at this point? There's no leverage point here. I mean, God's been snubbed, rejected, basically treated like a dog by Jonah. Jo- Jonah was like, actually, God, you stay. You, you sit. You, you stay. Yes, I'm going over there, and I want you to stay there. I'm going over here in my life. And that's actually what we do when we ever we act like Jonah and actually command God to stay out of certain parts of our lives. I saw this up close in an email I received about last week's message. This was actually from a guy in Australia. He listens online. And uh, if you remember, I was giving the example of how many Christians like to give full access to God in you know, most areas of our lives, except the ones they don't really want to change. And I gave the example of like a dating couple, let's say, okay, who's, who's, who's decided to live together. I mean, this is common practice, common practice in our modern 21st century world. And if you're new to us and you're like, oh man, watch it, this is, this is me, dude, just... It's not about you. It's a guy in Australia. No judgment, no condemnation for you. Because quite honestly, in our human perspective, this makes a lot of sense. We'll move in because we'll save on rent. We love each other. And come on, this will be good you know, practice before we get married. We've got to see if this is a fit. You don't buy a pair of shoes without trying them on first. Someone actually told that to me one time. Sounds a little bit like a Bon Jovi lurk, but okay. And then the word of the Lord comes to us. And God says, well, actually... I'm not primarily concerned with what's easiest, but with holiness, with right living. <laughs> and in the realm of committed relationships, the way I've ordained them, that doesn't include living together. Dating couples don't do married stuff first. You're actually not to treat one another like a pair of shoes. <laughs> Sex is a lot more than that. Sex is wonderful. Actually, God says, you might be surprised, but God is like, have all the sex you want. You have sex every night and paint the walls red. You just be sure to do it within the boundaries I've set around it, the gift I gave you, the loving confines of a for-life marriage commitment. Sometimes God will ask us to do things we don't want to do or don't make practical sense. So anyway, I get an email from this guy who listens online in Australia, and he writes this. He says, wow, powerful message, Tim. I identify with Jonah in a lot of ways. Um, Here's a little bit about me. I'm a committed Christian. I go to church. I read the Bible, and I listen to your podcast. Awesome but I'm also a little bit like Jonah. See, I'm living with my girlfriend. She's a Christian too. And I have to say, that part of things is a real stretch for me. See, we've been living together for almost a year now. And the idea of breaking up, or at least moving out, seems totally impractical, if not downright impossible. I want to know if this is realistic. It actually seems like it would hurt our togetherness more than it would make our relationship better. Please let me know what you think. I definitely have a lot to think and pray about. Sincerely, Z. You know, I got this. I was like, you know, I appreciate his dilemma. (laughs) I have no doubt moving in God's direction would be difficult and costly now that things have been set in motion. In fact, he's actually right. Their relationship likely would take an initial step backwards. I mean, they've already been doing married stuff and to take a step back will seem like it's kind of like downshifting their relationship. That's, That's what happens whenever you put the cart before the horse. It's always easier to move in than move out. Now, I have no idea what my friend from Australia would do, but if I had to bet, I think he kind of gives us a hint at the end. He says, I'm a committed Christian. I want to know if this is realistic. Please let me know what you think. I definitely have a lot to to pray about. He's actually asking the wrong question. Who cares what I think? (laughs) I dated my wife for eight years and strung her along for almost a decade. I am the last guy in the world you want relationship (laughs) advice from. (laughs) Rather, it's about what God thinks. In what God commands him to do. 
And the word of the Lord in this area of life is very clear. Living together isn't part of God's plan. It's for a marriage commitment. You know, and God says, I have actually reasons for this. I mean, part of them is to spare you actually a lot of hurt in the future. (laughs) Part of it is to develop your character. And much of it has to do because marriage is actually mostly about what happens once the sex wears off married couples. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I know you can't see that now. So I want you to trust me and take me at my word, no matter how difficult it is. The word of the Lord will come to you and you'll have the option of running often denying practicality, common sense, or cultural practice. And we have a choice. you got a choice at that moment, just like Jonah did. You could receive it and obey, or receive it and walk the other way and say, wow, powerful message. I certainly want to follow God. Just not in that area. You keep out of there, God, for now. I'll pray about it. And what happens at that moment is we start getting it backwards. We start setting boundaries for God and begin commanding Him. God, you're, you're amazing. You sweet thing, you. I like your companionship. I trust your word. This is good stuff. Except in this area of my life. So you sit, you stay, because I'm going over here and I want you staying over there. That's what Jonah did. He was a prophet. He was a man of God who had God's word in his mouth, but he treated God's backwards like a dog. And what happens when we do that with God, bad things happen. The The creature telling the creator what's worth doing. And eventually all hell breaks loose. The wheels fall off, the storm comes, the relationship breaks up, and we take on water and we start sinking. She feels like damaged goods. He knows in his heart of hearts that he's taking advantage of her and failing to become the kind of man that God can trust. Look, whatever your situation, I mean, I'm just giving you a topical one because someone wrote to me on this. Whether it's a relationship, your marriage, your business, your family, your career, when things go from bad to worse, we hit bottom. That is when we cry out. And start getting serious. And God's response at that point is incredible. Because he has no logical reason to respond to us. I mean, after all, we've dissed him, and yet he does. Jonah's literally at the bottom of the sea as a result of his decision to go in the opposite direction. And he prays, and scripture says, Jonah called to the Lord, and what? He answered me. And God has no reason to do this. It tells us something incredible about the heart of God that he would listen to the prayer of the runner. I mean, if you've run and run and run and run and run, and now you've finally gotten to where the bottom's starting to fall out and you're facing the consequences of your decisions, why would God need to pay any attention to your prayers? I mean, you don't have a lot of leverage with God. I mean, if you look at like Jonah for a minute, if you're in the belly, if you ever find yourself in the, in the belly of a Leviathan at the bottom of the sea, and you're praying a prayer of rededication, Lord, from now on, that doesn't have a lot of leverage. I mean, you don't have any choice at that point. Life is literally spun out of your control. So what's the point of saying, now, God, let me tell you what I'm going to do from here on out. Because God's like, son, there may not be a from here on out. (laughs) And yet what we discover is this. When you're at your wit's end, when you're at the bottom, even when you're facing the consequences of your decisions that you've made, there's no one to blame but you. When you turn to your heavenly father in that moment, here is the good news. God hears the prayers of those who run. He has no reason to listen. But the good news is that in your distress, God hears your cry. In fact, would you circle that word distress in verse 2? I gave you a pen there on your seat. You can mark these Bibles up. Take them home if you want them. You don't have one. In my distress, circle distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. I'm going to teach you a little Hebrew. The Hebrew word for distress is revealing here. Jonah uses the Hebrew word zara. Can everyone say that? Zara. 
And just write that, T-S-A-R-A-H, like Sarah, but Zarah. And this is a Hebrew word picture that was used to describe a woman giving birth. It meant all the pain and intensity that goes into giving birth. And it literally meant the travail or anguish, the distress of labor. It refers to like the internal agony that a woman goes through when she's actually giving birth. And so you see, get this picture. Jonah's on the inside in the belly of this fish, and he uses this pregnancy term, Zarah, to say, in my distress, in my agony, as I'm being squeezed internally in my Zarah, I called on God and he answered me. God actually hears the cry of any runner in his or her Zarah. And Jonah's Zarah is not totally random. <laughs> I mean, this is a guy who said, I brought this actually on myself. He deliberately disobeyed the commands of God, and yet God still responds. And then look at the next part of this verse. Jonah writes, this is important. He says, from the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Do you see the little footnote there, that little letter B next to the the, the word grave there? Circle that and look at the bottom of the page. What the footnote refers to, the Hebrew word for grave there is sheol. Can everyone say sheol, okay? That word can mean grave, and it can also be translated the realm of the dead. I personally like the way King James Version translates it, hell. From the depths of Sheol, from the depths of hell, I called for God, and he heard me. In other words, from the point at which I was farthest from God, from the place where I was miserable and had no way to contribute anything, from the point where I was helpless and hurting and desperate and afraid, from Sheol, I called on God. And he turned his ear to me. Now, this is going to speak to some of you right now because you're smack dab right now in the middle of what you would call Sheol in some aspect of your life. Some of you would say, yeah, from, from, the, depths, from the depths of my marriage, which is going through Sheol, I, I called to God and I need him to answer me. From the depths of my finances, which have gone to Sheol, I need God to reach in and help me. From the depths of shale in my heart, I walked in, I shook your hand, Pastor Tim, and everything I know on the outside seems fine and okay, but inwardly I am hurting or or depressed or lonely or feel isolated and I've got this anxiety that's weighing and crushing on me. From the shale of my heart, I called on God and he answered me when I had no place to turn. From the deepest, darkest place of my unseen life, my shale, from the internal anguish, that maybe I've even brought on myself, I called out to God and he heard me. When I needed him most and I deserved it the least, he was there for me. Rich stuff, powerful truth. Even when we run from God, he still hears our prayers. And this is hard to believe, isn't it, from a human perspective? I don't really relate to this. I mean... (laughs) And what do you do when you offer a friend or if you have kids, you offer them like sound guidance and they go the opposite way and like boom, blows up in their face. We liked it four words, right? I told you so in your face. (laughs) Not so with God. He actually doesn't lay on the guilt with a side helping of shame. No, in your face. Just how can I help? Because I still love you. Even when you reject me, you diss me or run from me, you can't outrun me. And I'm here for you, especially when things look their bleakest. When you're in shale, I will reach down to you. Amidst your zara, I hear your cry and answer your prayer. God listens to the prayers of those who run. I mean, that is one of the ways, I can't understand it, that God is not like us. (laughs) He is different, altogether different. And it's the first lesson of Jonah's prayer. Now, the second thing this incredible prayer reveals, check this out. 
is that God is actually often behind the circumstances that stop us in our tracks. Look what happens in verse 3. This perspective Jonah brings is fascinating. He writes this. He says, You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. And you might be reading that. You might be like, wait a minute, Jonah. Wait, you hurled me? I mean, God didn't hurl you. I was here for chapter 1. It was the sailors who tossed you overboard in the sea. You're getting your own story wrong. But Jonah's like, no, 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 no. No, I... I realize that physically speaking, it was the sailors who picked me up and threw me in. But now, looking back on it with a little bit of time and distance, I actually have a new perspective and see, you know what? It was God. It was God behind that. God was in the details. God was in the circumstances that rocked my world and got my attention. I mean, the sailors were just tools. But it was God in the circumstances that brought me to the end of myself. Here's what you'll discover when you turn back to God, Jonah's around us, including me, and stop running. The circumstances that you hate, the relationships that have gone sour, the debt that's about to swallow you, the decisions that are about to take you down, all the stuff that makes you so frustrated and mad and angry and it's his fault and it's her fault and life isn't going the way you want it to go. One day, when you have some perspective and you're back reconnected to your Heavenly Father, you will look back at your current circumstances and say, that was God. I didn't know it at the time. I mean, so-and-so didn't even recognize it at the moment, but they were an instrument of God in my life. God used that implosion in my life to get my attention and turn me a new way and catch this. That was God not paying me back, but bringing me back. This is not about punishment, about God whacking you because you got out of line, but actually allowing things, amping it up in your life so that you would be drawn back into the relationship you were created for. God uses all sorts of things we'd never choose for ourselves for that purpose, to bring us back and and be dependent on Him. I think of another guy um, from the internet who was listening to a series he did a couple years ago on porn. You guys remember that at all? I did a message series called Porn Again a couple years ago, and he wrote to me from England. And I remember his letter because... You've gotten emails like this? Yeah, this is one of those three-page single-space jobbers. No punctuation. (laughs) Just starts, dear Tim, just goes. (laughs) Anyway, in that three-page letter, he shared the story of how he started dabbling in porn when he was in high school. And and again, you know, just, gosh, growing up in today's culture, it's like, how in the world would you, you know, that web is all around you. He got really involved in college and was pretty much hooked by the time he graduated. And when he got married, he brought that right into the relationship with him. Now, here's the thing. He was actually able to hide it for a while. Actually, didn't do much of it at home. Instead, he just surfed sites at his work on breaks and stuff. And then he got promoted. And he got a new computer. And his old computer went back to IT. And he got called into his boss's office three days after his promotion. And they sat him down and told him, you're gone. Hand in your security card now. And he didn't make the connection immediately, but then they handed him a list across the table. An itemized, dated, and documented list of the directory of all the thousands of pornographic sites that he'd visited and surfed and lingered on over a two-year period. And there it was in black and white, undeniable, irrefutable. And as he described it, he capitalized it and underlined it. It was the worst day of my life. I want you to imagine that three days earlier popping champagne with your wife and kids, promotion. And three days later, having to go home and explain 
how you lost your job like that. But the reason he wrote was not to just give a cautionary tale or, or sympathy. What was incredible about his letters, I, I got to the third page, the story kind of turned, I actually kind of started you know, skimming it, and then my eyes caught these words. Now I realize that was actually the best moment of my life. And I was like, what? And I went back to read that last passage, and he described how that implosion, he's called it his D-Day experience, where his addiction was exposed and revealed and completely dismantled this nice little life he had going along. He was the very thing that caused him to get the help that he actually had no idea he needed. His wife, and he actually entered counseling almost immediately, and through some very, very difficult work and tears and blood and sweat and honesty, they began repairing their marriage brick by brick and actually addressing some other very unspoken wounds in the process. And he goes, Tim, I learned one thing I never had in my whole life. He goes, I was an A-type person. He goes, I learned humility. He said, I mean, there is very little you can do to save face when it's public knowledge to your family, your friends, your neighbors, why you lost your job. And then he wrote this, I learned to know God in a whole new way. As a child who was dependent on him for a lot of things. To remove my guilt because I would have crucified myself, the guilt of that. To restore my marriage when I was helpless and blind to even see it. To reaffirm my reputation, not as a perfect person, just now as a forgiven one. He said, it was the best moment of my life, a turning point. And he ended, he never got his job back. In fact, at the time, he was still working at a lower level position when he wrote me. But this, with some time and distance from the Sheol of that day, he looked back and said, that was God. And I wish it never happened. That I hadn't gotten myself in that position. But you know what? It sounds crazy. I can't believe I'm saying this. I wouldn't change a thing because God used it to change me, to save my life. I lost my job, but saved my soul. That's intense, folks. Heavy stuff. To be able to see God in the circumstances that bring us to the end of ourselves. Jonah says, you hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas. All your waves and breakers swept over me. And to recognize that God was behind that, not to pay us back, but to bring us back. I don't know, this may be ringing some bells for you in different areas, but perhaps... You can't see at this moment in your life your zara or your shale as a good thing. But can you allow that it's possibly a God thing? I mean, you may be mad and you're angry at everyone else around you and everyone's fault and you can't see straight now, but it's God's severe mercy to get your attention and to lead you back and change you. you. You may not see it now, but the day will come as you get to know your heavenly father and you think, I actually can't imagine where my life would be now if... That hadn't happened to me. That was God not paying me back, but bringing me back in loving kindness. God is often behind the circumstances that stop us in our tracks. That's what Jonah's prayer, the second thing it teaches us. Now, the third lesson is, by the way, just so I just so, don't want to get too heavy, especially if you're here for the first time. Um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I know, heavy stuff. And you're like, oh, man, this is like, bam, whoo. Uh, you got to know, this ain't a perfect church. I am not a perfect man. I am just, I'm just, I'm just the guy who talks up here. <laughs> and what all thing we ask is you just be totally honest. I mean, I, I'm like any other guy. Struggle with pornography. You are welcome here. So we, we actually say, we say, uh, no perfect people allowed. Any perfect people here right now? You can just kind of go down the center aisle. 
All right. It was funny at the. It was weird timing at the first service. Actually, a woman like was getting up to go to the bathroom. I was like, "Any perfect people here?" She's like, "Oh gosh." She like got caught in between. You know? <laughs> kind of funny. You know what they say? If you find a perfect church full of perfect people, whatever you do, don't join it because you'll wreck it. <laughs> right? Everyone here, just be honest. We all have our thing. But the third lesson that comes on the heels of this is a lesson that every major Bible character has discovered, and many of us who've walked with God for some time have also recognized, and it's this, that God's discipline is thorough. That is, when God comes after us to bring us back, sometimes He's not gentle. In fact, sometimes when God comes to bring us back, He's so extreme that we can't even believe God would allow the kinds of things that are like happening. This is how Jonah describes it in the heart of his prayer. Would you look at this? This is verses 4 through 7. He describes how things get progressively worse as he ran. He said... I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. As he's looking down the surface from the ship, the deep surrounded me. He plunged into the water. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Now he's sinking (laughs) down, down, down to the roots of the mountains. I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. He's sinking into the darkness of the deep. But you brought my life up from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God, verse seven, when my life was ebbing away, I love that very poetic kind of title imagery. He's like, my life was ebbing away. This is the very end. God, I've held my breath for as long as I can. I've endured about as much as possible for a human to absorb. This is it. I remembered you. Oh, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Do you see this? It literally gets progressively worse. He's highlighting his prayer. Deeper, 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 down, darkness. His descent just goes. And the process of things coming apart in your life, the wheels falling off, the descent of your life into Sheol. Now, let me ask you a question at this moment. How long do you think it took Jonah before he repented? In other words, he is in the belly of a Leviathan, 20,000 leagues under the sea. How long do you think it took him to repent and cry out? Three days? Three nights? Try three seconds. (laughs) Help, right? First, he thought he was going to drown, and then he's swallowed by this fish. And yeah, he gets Jonah's attention, but yet God keeps him in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights. Why? See, when God decides to bring us back, he is unbelievably thorough. (laughs) When the nation of Israel rebelled against God, he didn't send them into exile for a year or for 10 years or for 20 years or for 50 years. He sent them into exile for, anyone know this? 70 long years. You see this actually all throughout scripture. When Israel rebelled in the desert, he didn't let them wander for a year or four years, just like a little time out. He let them wander for 40 long years. Now that's a heck of a time out. (laughs) little overkill, doesn't it seem? I mean, when King David committed adultery with Bathsheba, God doesn't just slap him on the wrist like that was that. He lost his son. He lost his throne. He lost it. This is the man after God's own heart. He lost his reputation, his kingdom, his influence. He lost everything. And I got to be totally candid with you. When I read these stories, sometimes I think like, God, didn't you maybe overdo it like a little bit? (laughs) And then we discover something about our Heavenly Father. We discover that sometimes God, not like a good father, but a perfect father, in his wisdom, needs to scar us, needs to etch it on our hearts, not to pay us back, 
but so that we'll be less prone to wander in the future. He disciplines us not to pay us back, but bring us back and keep us from making the same mistake again. When I was a kid, my parents used to spank my brother and I with a wooden spoon. Anyone get the wooden spoon in here? All right. Oh, my gosh. Let's start a support group. That's amazing. Oh, wow. Thank you. Oh, I feel, I feel even better. That's, this is just one of those ordinary wooden cooking spoons. You remember that thing? Like you stir the batter of a cake or something, all right? And, and that, that wooden spoon that sat on the counter of our, our kitchen counter in this jar with like ladles and whisks and other stuff. And whenever my brother or I would do something really bad, out would come the spoon, like in slow motion. Do, 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 ah, you know, the spoon. Now, not regular anything, but for, like extreme thing. But for, for instance, once my brother and I, we actually, do you remember those, those red caps you'd put like in a cap gun? We actually, my brother and I, um, we got a whole pack of them, and we, we systematically scraped the gunpowder out of each cap to make like a little, you know, pile of gunpowder. makes a lot of sense when you're 10, all right? Just go with me. And, uh, and we lit that thing and actually set our whole front bushes on fire in our house. It's an amazing moment. Wooden spoon moment, okay? And the funny thing was this, that when I was young, whenever I saw my mom or dad reaching for that wooden spoon, I became a changed man. I repented. I just started talking a mile a minute and got all, I got Jesus. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, I'm so sorry. I repent. I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. You were totally right, mama. No, no, no. Take it easy. I'm reformed, you know? And you know what my dad would do anyway? He'd spank me hard. (laughs) Why? Because he knew something. Because he was like, Tim, I actually want you to so closely associate rebellion and pain that when you're older, you'll actually remember. And yeah, the pain I'm about to inflict may actually be a little bit more than you deserve, but as a father who loves you, I want you to forever and ever so associate pain and rebellion because the pain of rebellion will always be worse than the discipline of a father who loves you infinitely. And because I love you, I'm going to do this. Didn't that drive you nuts? This is going to hurt you more than it hurt me. I go, yeah, I've read that somewhere. Not so much. I'm doing this because I love you. What? We don't get this as kids. We may not get it now as adults, but when you grow up, my father would say, when you grow up, you may actually thank me. You know what? That, that's impacted me to this day. I mean, every time Colleen makes a cake and uses a spoon, to stir, I, I like flinch, you know? It's like I... Look, I understand this is not really PC because it's not necessarily a popular parenting technique, but folks, this is a spiritual reality of being in a relationship with a God who is a perfect father. Proverbs 3.12 tells us this. The Lord, let's read it together, the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Discipline, delight, how are they? This is hard stuff. Maybe only a parent can understand this, but discipline is closely aligned with delight from God's vantage point. Not because he delights in punishing us, but that his discipline is an expression of his deep love for us as a father who cares. A father who only wants the very best for his beloved children. So the truth is, sometimes the consequences of your misdeeds will seem to outweigh what you did or far exceed it. You know, you ever have that like, all I said was this and now look what's unhappened. It all unraveled. All I did was this, and now I've got this, I'm facing this. And Jonah's prayer teaches us, yeah, God's discipline is thorough. And in the midst of it, we hate it. But when we see it in the rear view with some perspective, we actually may just say at some point in our life, you may not imagine it now, thank you, God, because I will never, ever, ever forget. Quick sidebar to, um, 
to parents. My kids, you know, are small, three, five years old. But um, none. We have some parents with teenagers. We're starting this youth group in the fall. Very exciting. But but if your if your kids are running from God, this is hard. I'm preaching to myself here. If your kids are running from God, parents, sometimes, and this is hard to hear, the best thing you can do is actually let them face the full frontal consequences and fall out of what they're doing. My brother had a friend who actually uh, got into drugs, kind of like high end stuff. Like he was in, they lived, he lived in Manhattan, got into cocaine, addiction, the whole thing, and um, kept coming to his parents. He lived in the Upper East Side for money, knocking on the door. Uh, they would give him, you know, money. He'd get into rehab, jump out of rehab, kind of a, you know, Paris Hilton kind of thing. This went on as a cycle for eight or nine times for almost two years. And there came a point which he actually stole from them, and they forgave him and stole again, and then they realized that actually, they were going to have to do what I think I, I can't even imagine doing. They decided one day the best thing they could do for their son is to lock the door and not answer it when he came around. And I imagine that, that the sound of your son knocking, knocking, come on, come on, I promise, I promise, open, oh, oh, oh. And just sitting there as a parent, I'm not going to God, I trust you, I can't. You're left with like two interpretations of that. Is that, is that a heartless parent? Or one of the most courageous acts of severe mercy? Again, I'm speaking over my head. I'm indebted to Andy Stanley for this insight. He, was, he worked a lot with teens. And I, admit, I don't fully understand it since my kids are young. But he says, in all parents, every one of us, there, there's this thing that wants to rescue our children. But when we rescue them from the discipline of God, we actually may short-circuit the very thing God was trying to teach them and actually build into their character. What your lectures couldn't do. What God's doing in their life that actually may scar them a little bit now, may save them from some short-term pain, but we may thwart the thing that God is trying to do to save them a lifetime of heartache. And I know, I mean, as a parent, the natural impulse is to jump off the ship and fish your kid out of the sea, but the most courageous thing you may do is to commit them to the hands of a loving God and let the consequences of their running play out. That's one of the ways as parents that we may be called to mirror the Father heart of God. Again, I don't speak from experience in this department. You may have to give me the CD when my kids are teens, okay? Yeah, remember this? But this is the truth of God's grace nonetheless. And only with time and distance do we see that. Now, I want to close with this. This is the last lesson we take from Jonah's prayer, and it's, uh, it's really the hopeful thing. And it's this. It's God's grace runs faster and deeper than our greatest sin. Look quickly at verses 8 and 9 that culminate his prayer. The prayerless prophet writes this. He says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. I really want to focus on verse 8 here because this is the linchpin, by the way, to this entire prayer. I mean, if you want to talk about living on a prayer, this is it. Those who cling, Jonah writes, to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. I want you to circle that word grace again. The Hebrew word for this is chesed. Can we all say that and do a little phlegm thing? Chesed. And that doesn't just mean love. That's not just like, oh, I feel affection or schmaltzy kind of sentiment. It means a specific kind of love, the pursuing love of God. Chesed. It's a beautiful picture of an aggressive kind of love, a love that actually comes after you. Does anyone remember the movie Last of the Mohicans? Remember Last of the Mohicans? There's this moment in the trailer when the, the Indian warriors have captured, I think it's Kate is the girl's name, 
And they're leading her away. And Daniel Day-Lewis yells to her in this famous scene. He says, stay alive, whatever it takes, I will find you. And then he like plunges off this hundred foot waterfall and he spends the rest of the movie running like a man possessed. You see that picture from the publicity still there? Running through the woods with this look in his eye, tracking her trail in hot pursuit of this person he's dedicated to, do whatever it takes to reclaim her. Chesed. The pursuing love of God that will stop at nothing until I find you. And the idea here is that Jonah is saying, I see the lengths that God in his mercy, in his grace, in his chesed, has gone through to bring me back. I have tried to run. I tried to run 3,000 miles to the other side of the ocean, and guess who's waiting? He followed me there. I have sunk to the depths, 20,000 leagues under the sea. Guess who's waiting? He followed me there. Even in the belly of this fish, at this darkest moment in my life, God is reaching out to me. That's the chesed. Or pursuing love of God. And Jonah says this, the only way to forfeit this or, or miss out on it, this incredible loving kindness of God, is to what? Let's read it. Cling to worthless idols. And the word picture is meant to evoke someone holding on to, I want you to imagine someone holding on to a cement statue and they're sinking in the water because it's pressing down and they're holding their breath and they're going down, 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 down. But in this fit of madness, they're clutching the very thing that can ever keep them from coming up. They just have to let go and they'll come up for air. But they're like, no, I won't let go. What's an idol? An idol is anything that we choose to hold on to over God. It could be a relationship, could be a person, could be a thing, a career, an income, whatever it is for you. I know God wants me to do this, but I want to do this. And like most of us, for Jonah, it was really an idol of self. I got a call uh, last week from a girl who wanted to get married. And, um, and she and her boyfriend don't go to church. Someone told them to call me. Don't know why. <laughs> um, and she called me and, uh, and she started telling me. And she said, here's the deal. A little problem with, with, with getting married. Want to be married by, by you. Um, but he's an atheist. Actually hates church. Hates church people. And I'm like, now I know why he called me. Uh, she's like, he had a bad experience with organized religion growing up. And, but here's the problem. I'm like, so why, why are you calling me? And she's like, the problem is I really, really, really want to get married in a church. So someone gave me the name of, of Liquid, and, and here I am calling you. And she's like, I, I heard your church is different. And I said, we are. <laughs> and she said, how so? I said, well, for one thing, we don't allow Pharisees here. It's a Pharisee-free zone because we're all broken people. Um, we're about 17% less judgmental than most churches. Uh, <laughs> and you can wear flip-flops on Sunday. That about covers the whole you know, span. And, and we laughed. But, but I was like, I was like, look, I, I'd be happy to talk with you and your boyfriend. They were living together. Surprise, surprise. And she said, well, here's, we really don't want to talk to you, though. We just want to get married. I said, well, I see. Well, <clears throat> uh, at the very least, we should probably get together for coffee to see what that would entail. Dead silence. I'll have to see. I, I, I doubt my boyfriend would go for that. He doesn't like priests. I said, well, I'm not, I'm not a normal priest. Uh, and, and she said, look, just be blunt with me, Father. Will, will, you, will you marry us? And I said, honestly, I have no idea. I have never met you. We've talked for two minutes, and I have no idea 
where you or your fiance is at. But here's the deal. I would welcome the chance to meet with you. And here's the, if I can promise you, I'm not going to lecture you or condemn you or judge you guys or like hit you in the bridge of the nose with a Bible. More than anything, you got to understand, when we do a wedding here at Liquid, we actually see it as more than just an event. It's not like just this big day. I mean, we can help you plan details and stuff, but we're actually most interested in your marriage. What happens after the guests leave? And we want to help you with that. I'm guessing there's some areas where you guys probably could, could, you know, be working more together as a team. And she said, yeah. I said, well, you want to get together and talk about that? Silence. I'll call you back. (laughs) Click. Didn't hear back for a week. And then I got an email, an email I didn't even have to open because the subject line simply says, thanks anyway. And I read in that email, she said, I I actually would really like to come in and talk with you. She said, there are actually a lot of things that I know my boyfriend and I need to work on before marriage. He's kind of angry, but I'm sorry, I can't. He won't come. He's really turned off by organized religion. And, and I was on your website, and I'm actually kind of open to what you're talking about. It seems like you're about this thing called, called grace and, and, and loving people and accepting them where they're at. But I'm sorry, it's asking too much of him. Thanks. Anyway. And I read that email. I don't even know her. I talked to her for seven minutes. And it kind of broke my heart because I was like, oh, sweetheart, you've, you've got a chance here. you got a chance here. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. What does the word forfeit mean? Give up without even trying. I'm not even going to give it a go. We had to forfeit the game. You forfeit the grace, the goodness of God, that he could do something absolutely incredible in your life. That they could could actually be met for maybe the first time in their life without judgment, (laughs) without guilt, with loving kindness, with, with truth. But, but they couldn't risk that step, only willing to do it on their terms. They could only see what they might give up, which is their comfort, not what they could gain. Folks, a lot of us make very bad trades in life, holding on to things, clinging to idols, and missing out on the chesed of God. Why do we run like that? Why? When we're young, we believe that to uh, pursue God, if you open up all areas of your life to his authority, honestly, tell me this is true, you think you're going to miss out on good things. God, you'll just get in the way of what really will make me happy, so see ya, stay while I pursue this. And somewhere down the road, maybe I'll need you, and maybe I'll discover, actually, that, that didn't fill me up at all. Someday we wake up and realize, I actually forfeited, I didn't even the unconditional love and acceptance that could have been mine and led to actually even greater fulfillment and purpose by chasing this stupid idol down the road. That leads absolutely nowhere. That's what happened to Jonah. And in this prayer, he comes upon this moment of discovery and he actually says, salvation, the essence of life itself, comes from the Lord. In other words, he says, I thought I could save myself by running this way. I thought I could save myself from doing something I didn't want to do. I could save myself from unhappiness, from loneliness, from guilt, from unworthwhile, whatever, what worthiness. Save myself. You stay. Save myself. I'm going to save it. No, you stay. Not. And what all runners eventually discover is that salvation from loneliness, for instance, comes complete, comes from the Lord. Salvation from a broken heart, from God. From fear from God. Salvation from a purposeless life is from the Lord alone. Salvation from pain and guilt is actually from God. 
And until we turn to that, we're just going to keep chasing things down the hall. And it's only when we can look back and we say, oh my gosh, what was I thinking when I ran? You think it'll be greater. In your 20s, tell me this isn't true. You think it will be greater when you get over the hill. Well, you know, maybe once I turn 25 or then 30, you know, and, and then I'll get the golden ring. But you know what? It's not. It's more of the same. The only salvation that's found under heaven is in the chesed, the salvation, the person of Jesus Christ, God's only son, who literally embodied the chesed or pursuing love of God by coming to this earth in pursuit of you and me. No matter how far we've run, we can actually find our way back, the Bible says, through faith in his three-day, three-night burial in the heart of the earth and his resurrection, we can actually have newness of life. A new kind of life where we reunited to God and actually turn our whole life over to trust in him to, to run it for us. But we first have to surrender our life and put our full trust in his authority. You know what's funny? In Hebrew, the word salvation is from the root Yeshua. Jesus in Hebrew is Yeshua. Same root. Salvation comes from the Lord. Jesus comes from God. The good news is that with the coming of Yeshua, of Jesus Christ, runners everywhere actually have a second chance. Where you're at right now is not the final destination. The final verse in in Jonah 2, it simply says this, And the Lord commanded the fish... And it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Animals don't ask questions. And he gave Jonah a second chance. Why? Because God's grace runs deeper and faster than our greatest sin. Folks, I don't know, again, where you're at today. You may have different things going on inside. Having run doesn't disqualify you from God's love or reclaiming his purpose in your life. Every hero, all the heroes in this book, Old Testament and New, were runners. All the people who ever made a difference for God were runners. At our church, you know what the qualifications are to preach here? You've got to be an ex-runner. You've got you to say, I, I, I'm a sinner. To teach kids, you know what? We have to be cleanly and you've got to be a sinner. To hand out bulletins, you've got to be an ex-runner. You can't do anything in this church unless you're a sinner or an ex-runner. Why? Because that's the only kind of people that God uses. God actually can take the crap and the brokenness and the wasted years and leverage that through you into the life of someone else. I look at like Peter, the Apostle Peter, right? Think of Peter's last time face to face with Jesus. I never knew him. I'm reading that and I'm like, well, Peter's out. (laughs) Who's going to use that guy? And Jesus says, actually, I'm going to use him, this man, you, to build my church. I'm going to let you write two books of the Bible too. Anyone else thinks they're beyond redemption. And when you quit running, you give God's grace the chance to do incredible things. Because it's grace that can actually restore relationships, recover finances. It's grace that repairs a family, that actually restores a heart. But the one thing you don't get back is time. I mean, the groan, the groan of the runners, ah, oh, the wasted years. If only I could recapture my 20s or 30s. Or if I had stopped running when my kids were younger, things might have turned out different. The only thing you won't get back is time. So question, challenge for you. Why not let today be the end? Why not throw up your hands and say, you know what, I'm done. I'm done running. And here's what you'll discover. God's grace for you runs faster and deeper than your greatest failing. God will hear your prayer no matter where you are in the process. 
And you'll find actually that he's right in the middle of the circumstances that have maybe brought you to the end of yourself. And yes, his discipline is thorough. You may be scarred as a reminder, but you'll discover that he is a God of second chances. Don't waste another season of your life. Another summer, another spring, another year. Stop running. Pray. Put your trust in him for salvation. He is the source of it, not you, not anything you're chasing after. And he is committed not to pay you back, but to bring you back because he loves you. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and pray together. Lord, we just thank you so much for grace. We are so grateful to you, God, that no matter what we've done or how far we've run, we haven't even begun to spend the chips that you have for us, God. You, you are infinite love. You offer forgiveness whenever one of us cries out with humility and sincerity of heart. So, Lord, I just pray even right now, I thank you for being in this space. I thank you for your spirit, for illuminating your word, Lord. Thank you so much for the life of Jonah, Lord. We see ourselves in him. I see myself in him. And I want to pray right now for every man and woman in this room, Lord. There may be different things going on in your heart right now. You pray to God. If you're listening on the Internet, you're in England or Australia, wherever, that's God speaking to you. That's not me. And he wants you to speak to him. We say thank you, Jesus, for embodying the love of our Heavenly Father. For dying in our place, Lord, so that we could be raised to newness of life. Set up on dry land to walk in a new direction. Lord, I pray for every runner in this room that you'll do something far beyond this service, Lord, but today could be a day where they, they make a hard decision, Lord. Maybe it's to open up an area of their life that was previously closed to you, Father. Stir in them now and give us the courage and the humility to cry out to you. In Jesus' name.